Father, we come to your word today with an eagerness and an expectancy. We are mindful of the words of the prophet Isaiah, where he writes, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God, we believe that your word is powerful. We believe that through the word of God, you accomplish your work in the hearts and minds of your people. God, we invite you now to speak to each and every one of us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us soft and open hearts, receptive hearts this morning. Would you help us to comprehend and understand the words that we've just read and, of course, help each and every one of us to apply these things to our lives. We ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please be seated. Now, as many of you know, I I grew up in a church called Harvest Christian Fellowship, which is down in Riverside, and it's a church pastored by a very well-known pastor. His name is Greg Laurie, and one of the things that Greg is known for is evangelism. Um, In fact, some of you probably have either heard of or maybe even attended a Harvest Crusade at some point in your life for over 30 years Uh, Harvest Ministries has rented out Angel Stadium in Anaheim and gathered tens of thousands of people there. And Greg will stand and preach the gospel and invite people to put their faith in Jesus. And for me, growing up in that church and then becoming a pastor in that church, one of the things that I personally always really appreciated is that when people would come forward at an event like that, indicating that they wanted to say yes to Jesus, Harvest would always call those people professions of faith, professions of faith, as opposed to maybe brand new converts or something like that. And the reason why they would use that language is because some of those people who would profess faith in Jesus would actually ultimately fall away. Some would revert back to their old ways immediately, almost overnight. Others might follow along with Jesus for a little while and then again, fall away or revert back to their, other, their old life. And others still might follow along with Jesus for several years and maybe even start serving the Lord, but eventually fall away. And then finally, there were those who would follow Jesus from that day forward. They would receive his word. They'd begin to bear much fruit in their lives and they'd still serve Jesus today. Here in the parable before us this morning... Jesus describes this very sort of reality. Jesus here in this parable describes the different ways that people upon hearing God's word respond to it. This is traditionally called the parable of the sower. I'm kind of a traditional type of a person so the title of the sermon today is the parable of the sower. Mark's record of this teaching is structured in a really clear way, and it's the outline we're going to follow this morning. He breaks it into kind of three parts. The first is he tells the parable itself. This is verses 1 through 9. So this is just Jesus' parable that he he gives. Second, Mark records for us Jesus' purpose 
for sharing parables, the purpose in teaching with parables. This is covered in verses 10 through 12. And then finally, you have the point of the parable, or we could say the explanation of the parable in verses 13 through 20. And so we're going to look at this teaching through that grid. We'll begin then with the parable itself. Again, the parable, the teaching of Jesus, is covered in verses 1 through 9. Let's reread, starting in verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. We'll stop there. You'll notice that the setting for this moment of teaching in the life of Jesus is quite picturesque. Jesus is not teaching in the synagogue. He's not teaching at this point in a classroom. He's not teaching in somebody's home. No, where do we find Jesus teaching? On the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So he's outside, he's on the shore, and the people there are looking out onto the sea. We read that Jesus actually gets into a small boat, and he just pushes slightly offshore, and he takes a seat, and he begins to teach. Now, the reason for this rather unconventional teaching method of getting into a boat is told to us in the text. It's because the crowds are so overwhelming. Again, we've seen throughout Mark's gospel this idea that the crowds cannot get enough of Jesus. Everywhere he shows up, people are gathering. They cannot get enough of him. And in this case, Jesus actually has to get out into the ocean, or the sea rather, a little bit, sit in the boat and begin to project and teach the crowds. What is he teaching them? Well, we read here that he's teaching them many parables. And some of those parables are recorded for us right here in chapter 4. The first and the seemingly most weighty parable, if we just judge by the amount of space that Mark gives to it, is this parable of the sower. It's a significant teaching. And Jesus begins, you'll notice, with a command actually in verse 3. What does he say there right at the beginning of verse 3? He says in an an emphatic way, he says, listen, right at the beginning of verse 3. Notice also that in verse 9, Jesus is going to bookend this whole parable with another instruction to listen. Here's what verse 9 says. He said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What is Jesus calling for in verse 9? I mean, obviously, everybody there listening to him teach, just like everyone here this morning, has a set of ears, and they're able to hear the words that are coming out of his mouth. But he's clearly looking for more than just hearing in that kind of a way, just hearing the words. What Jesus is calling for here is he's calling for spiritual discernment. Jesus is tipping us off here to the fact that There's more going on than what meets the eye with what he's going to teach. In other words, you've got to be able to dig deeper than the surface of his parable, of his story, if you really want to grasp his teaching and be blessed by it and benefited by it. And so, Jesus here is inviting the crowds, and actually he's inviting you and me this morning to just sort of lean in, to give him our undivided attention, to listen And to open our minds and our hearts to his message. Now, the story itself 
would have been pretty familiar to everybody there listening to Jesus on that day. Everyone would be able to envision the scene. Jesus begins in verse 3 saying, A sower went out to sow some seed. And in an agrarian society like this, everyone knew what this looked like. Because in that kind of a society, every farmer every year would go out at the appointed time and they would sow their seed into a field, hoping that months down the line they would have a rich harvest that they were able to bring in. Now I can recall a few different times throughout my childhood where we planted a lawn And my dad would go and he'd prepare the area that we were going to plant grass in. And he'd get all of the soil ready. And then we would actually plant the seed. Now, we didn't use sod. We didn't just roll out sod. We were too broke for that. So, no, what we did is we used one of these bad boys right here. Anybody else ever used one of these before? This is a seed spreader. You literally have to do this manually. You've got to grab this thing. I've got a lot of seed in here, so I'm just going to spray it all over you. No, I'm just kidding. That'd be awesome, though, just to start spraying people with seed. But you load it with grass seed, right? And then you start walking around the area that you want grass to grow, and you just turn this, and you're doing this in the areas that you want grass, and it's just spraying seed out kind of indiscriminately all over the area that you want the grass. Now, I remember doing this, as a kid and turning this and shooting seed out of it. And here's what would happen. Most of the seed would land in the area that we were trying to get grass. But some of the seed would land on the concrete. Some of the seed would land over in a planter where we already had shrubs or rose bushes or something else. So seed would kind of go everywhere. And if it was a windy day, seed would really take off and probably go places that I wasn't even seeing it. You don't have perfect control as you're scattering the seed with one of these old school seed spreaders. Now, this isn't identical to the ancient world. They didn't have seed spreaders like this, but it's probably the closest technique that we have today. In the ancient world, when somebody was going to sow their seed for a particular crop, they'd have a bag kind of slung around them and it'd be filled with seed. And the sower would go and they'd grab from the seed and just like the seed spreader, they would just sort of throw it out there. And the seed would go out indiscriminately and land in different areas. And so for the listeners to this parable, as Jesus is teaching, they would have had no challenge whatsoever grasping the concept that as a sower throws seed out, it's going to land on different kinds of soil, which is going to ultimately yield different results. This is the visual that Jesus wants them to get. There's four different soils in his teaching that this seed is going to land on. In verse 4, it's the path. So think about a pathway, a dirt pathway. The soil there is compact from foot travel day in and day out. So if seed lands on a path, that path is hardened. The seed cannot penetrate the soil and therefore nothing grows on a footpath. The second soil in verses 5 and 6 is a rocky soil. So Jesus points out that the soil is so cluttered with these rocks that a seed cannot actually establish deep roots. And therefore, when the sun comes out, the seed is scorched. The third soil is thorny soil in verse 7. So this is crowded soil where the weeds or the thorn bushes actually crowd out the seed of whatever's being planted and chokes the seed and therefore it cannot grow. 
Finally, in verse 8, Jesus describes a good soil. This is the soil that every farmer's really aiming at. It's the soil that they want their seed to land in. And in that kind of soil, the seed can actually take root and produce a crop. So that's the parable that Jesus gives them. This is what he tells them. And so the question becomes, well, what's the takeaway of the story that Jesus tells? At its surface level, here's what everybody would have gotten. There's one seed. There's four kinds of soil. And the outcome of the seed is dependent on the condition of the soil. Are we all tracking with that? We all see that. It's one kind of seed. There's four kinds of soils. And the outcome of the seed is going to be dependent on the condition of the soil. So everybody would have gotten that. They would have said, that's interesting. Thank you, Jesus. But they also would have said, there's no way that this teacher, this rabbi, could just be talking about throwing out seed. I mean, these are obvious truths that everybody already knew. So what is Jesus really getting at? What's his actual point? Well, the disciples are wondering that and it prompts them to ask him the question in verse 10. They want to know, what is this really all about? Here's verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now, I love that they waited until Jesus was alone before they asked him what these parables are all about, because I can so relate to that. I remember being a student. And a teacher would be there lecturing to the class and drawing on the board and explaining some concept and then would always ask, does that make sense? Do you guys understand? And even though I had no idea what the teacher was talking about, I'd sit there and I'd nod. Oh, yeah. You look at your friends around you. It's like, of course we understand, right? We all got this. But you don't. And then I would find that later when class was dismissed and nobody else was around and the teacher was alone... I'd walk up and I'd go, hey, you remember the thing you were talking about earlier? Can you help me understand that? Can you explain it to me? I didn't want to be embarrassed in front of everybody else, so I would ask the teacher in private. And you can almost picture the disciples when they're sitting among the whole crowd and Jesus is saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he's explaining this parable, sitting there looking around like, oh yeah, we got this. This makes perfect sense, right? We understand the deeper meaning. We know what Jesus is really getting at. But again, the moment they get Jesus alone, they're like, why are you teaching in parables? What is going on? What do you actually mean with what you're saying? So they ask him about it. But notice that before he explains to them his parable, he's going to first explain the purpose or the reason why he even teaches in parables to begin with. And this brings us now to the purpose of parables in verses 10 through 12. What was his purpose in teaching in parables? Why was Jesus doing that? Well, the answer is this. Jesus taught in parables to both reveal and conceal. He taught in parables to both reveal and conceal. Notice the use of parables serves his disciples, called in this passage, those around him with the twelve, in one way, And it serves everyone else, called those outside in another way. For his disciples, the parables are meant to reveal. 
Jesus says to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Jesus, with his disciples, is going to explain to them all about the kingdom of God and all about what God is doing through Jesus as the Messiah to Israel. He's going to continue to give them more and more and more revelation. In fact, in Matthew's telling of this passage, Jesus here actually says, uh, to the one who has been given, more will be added to him. But to the one, or to the one who has, more will be given to him. To the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The disciples are clearly the ones to whom something has been given. They've been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to keep teaching you. I'm going to keep revealing more to you. See, the disciples were the ones who were responding to what Jesus had already revealed by faith. They were trusting in Jesus. They were following after Jesus. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to keep feeding you more. You've been given something and you will be given even more. But notice that for everybody else, rather than these parables revealing wisdom and knowledge and insight into the purposes of God, the parables are actually meant to conceal. Jesus says here, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed, indeed hear but not understand. So the disciples then had been given an incredible privilege. The privilege to understand these things. God graciously let them in on these secrets. Again, about the, the purposes and the plan of God. And clearly not everyone was given this privilege. So while the masses get parables with no explanation, the disciples of Jesus get parables with understanding of the kingdom. But notice that the goal of using these parables toward those that are outside is so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. What's going on here? Mark here is actually quoting from Isaiah, back in Isaiah chapter 6, which is a really important passage in the Old Testament. Isaiah 6 is the calling of Isaiah into the prophetic ministry. And it's where Isaiah has that incredible vision of God Almighty, and you, you hear the, the holy, holy, holy statement coming about God in this text. This quote that Mark uses here comes in that context where Isaiah is being given his mission as God's prophet. What is his mission? Well, God gives him a mission to preach to the people so that seeing they will not see and hearing they will not understand. See, we need to understand that in Isaiah's passage, this inability for the people to see, this inability for the people to understand, comes upon these people as an act of God's judgment on them. God's people in Isaiah's day had so long rejected his word and so hardened their hearts that God was going to now leave them in that state to bring judgment upon them. And that judgment was inevitable. God would use these outside nations, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, to come in and bring judgment to his people. Well, in Jesus' ministry, Isaiah's prophecy is once again being realized. The people, and specifically when I say the people, we mean the scribes and the Pharisees, those who should have known better, 
had so long rejected God's word that Jesus would now speak to them in parables. In effect, leaving them in their hardened state as an act of God's judgment. If we just retrace our steps, we begin to grasp how fitting this actually is. For two chapters, Mark has been showing us as readers the growing antagonism between Jesus on one hand and the religious leaders on the other. In chapter 2, verse 7, they accuse Jesus, the Messiah, of actually blaspheming God himself. In chapter 3, verse 5, we read of their hardened hearts toward Jesus and toward God. In chapter 3, verse 6, we read that they begin to plot how they might murder Jesus. And finally, at the end of chapter 3, which we studied together last week, they actually accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed and being in league with Satan. And Jesus looks at them and he tells them, you have committed an unforgivable sin called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. All of that is to say that these people are settled in their disbelief and their opposition to Jesus. Despite being witnesses of Jesus's clear and authoritative teaching and being front row to Jesus healing people of diseases and disabilities and driving out demons, rather than having their hearts opened to the message of Jesus, they rejected him and they rejected God's revelation through him. Therefore, these people have reached the point of no return. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach offers a serious warning. I'm going to put it on the screens for us. He says this, and I quote, The danger of exposure to revelation is that if we do not respond in faith, eventually hardness sets in and God acts to judge. Here is a warning about the ultimate perils of rejection. God may sovereignly involve himself in cementing the process. These words are harsh, yet they serve as a warning of the extreme danger of rejecting Jesus' message. End quote. And friends, God forbid that any of us end up in that state. No, we want to be like the disciples, people to whom it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. We want to be those who see and understand and receive and apply the word of God. That was who the disciples were. And in light of the fact that they had been given to know these things, Jesus now in the final move in this text goes on to explain to them what this parable about sowing seed is actually about. So let's look together now at the point of the parable. Let's read starting in verse 14. Jesus says, The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Verse 18. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it 
and bear fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Now Jesus is giving us the real point to the parable. Jesus is saying, listen, the whole seed that's being cast out, you're meant to understand that that's the word of God. The sower goes out and he sows the word of God. The word of God is being scattered about indiscriminately, thrown everywhere, and it lands on all types of soils, just like normal sowing of seed does. Here in his parable, Jesus is going to represent four different soils, which represent four different hearts. The first three are bad soil, and they represent bad hearts. The final one is good soil, which represents, as Luke will later call it, a good heart. Let's look at these different soils or these different hearts together. And let's try to understand what Jesus is getting at. The first in verse 15, we can call the hardened heart. These are people who hear the word sitting in a church service like this. In their private school, through a friend, through a book, through reading the Bible on their own, over the radio or a podcast. Somehow they hear the word of God and yet it doesn't take at all. Just like a hardened footpath where a seed would land on it and not penetrate that soil at all. And just sit on top and become an easy meal for a bird. Jesus is saying, my word lands on these hardened hearts. And it doesn't penetrate. It does not take at all. And he says, it's not birds that a person needs to worry about in that case. He says, no, 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 it's the devil. Because like a bird, the devil swoops in immediately. And he takes that word, he takes that seed... And he carries it away. This is an apt description of these scribes and Pharisees. Whose hearts had become totally hardened. God's word was not penetrating at all. It wasn't taking at all. And I want all of us to notice together here. The active role that the devil plays in this process. According to Mark here. This person's unbelief is actually impacted by the work that the devil himself does. I want you to hear the words of the Apostle Paul when he speaks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, i.e. Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's heavy. See, a lot of times, people that you and I know that will say to you, uh, I don't want to talk about Jesus, or I don't want to talk about the Bible, or I don't want to talk about faith, they'll say, I have intellectual objections to Christianity. And they'll sort of push you away and push the word of God away and say, you know, I have intellectual objections. And at one level, that might be true. But friends, we have to understand that underneath any objection that a person's making to the truth of God's word is actually a spiritual issue and a spiritual objection. Spiritual warfare is real. We live in a day and age where many people want to deny that. But Jesus clearly taught that just as much as there is a good and loving God in heaven, 
there is an active and powerful devil who will one day be in hell. And he is right now attempting to drag as many people to hell with him as is possible. He would love to see every person in hell. But thanks be to God, God won't let that happen. What does this person look like? This is the person who, upon hearing the word of God, has every intention of resisting it. Maybe I could say it differently. This is the person who, upon hearing the word of God, already has their mind made up. They're not open to considering it. They're not open to the claims of Christ. They are just rejecting it out of hand. They don't want to hear it. They always deflect or redirect spiritual conversations. We're not talking about that right now. I'm not ready to have that conversation. Don't bring that up around me. I don't want to talk about this right now. As long as a person is in this state, it is not possible for them to be saved. In Luke's version, here's how Luke explains this exact same verse. This is Luke 8.12. He gives us a little bit more of what Jesus said here. He says, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So what can we do for this kind of a person? The only thing that we could do for this kind of a person is pray for God to take a rototiller to their hardened heart. Only God could open a person's heart And you know, it's true of every single person who comes to faith in Christ. It took God actually opening our hearts to receive the word. He had to till up the soil of our hearts to make it soft. The first person that Jesus describes is the person with the hardened heart. But he moves on. That's not the only kind of heart that his word lands on. Second, we can describe the person this way. It's the shallow heart. Look at verse 16 again. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So friends, this is the person who hears the word of God in church, by reading scripture, in a book, In their private school, through a friend who shares it with them, or a parent, or a grandparent. They hear the word, and notice, this is so incredible, they receive the word with, you see it? Joy. They receive the word with joy. So it penetrates at some level, perhaps it's at the the level of their emotions. But it never becomes deeply rooted faith. This is the person who prays a prayer to receive Christ. This is the person that goes forward at a harvest crusade when Greg Laurie is preaching the gospel. This is a person who says yes at one level to Jesus and then goes away from that moment and that decision rejoicing. They're stoked. They're so excited. They probably call their friends and call their families and say, you won't believe it. I've become a Christian. I'm going to follow Jesus now. They likely begin going to church. They might even be singing at the top of their lungs with their arms raised high as we're singing praises to God. They jump into serving. They might even do a short-term missions trip. And as long as following Jesus is making them feel warm and fuzzy inside and everything is great and everything's smooth and it feels like Jesus is making everything wonderful in their life, 
They're here for it. But notice what Mark says. He points out that Jesus here is saying that the moment that persecution or tribulation on account of my word arises, they fall away. The moment, let me translate that, the moment that following Jesus begins to cost them something, something precious in their life, they go, you know, I didn't sign up for that. I thought following Jesus was going to mean that my marriage and family was perfect from this day forward. I thought following Jesus meant that I would have more zeros in my bank account now than I did before. What in the world is going on here? I'm not going to continue to follow Jesus if it means persecution, if it means that I lose relationships for being a Christian, or people say bad things about me, or it impacts my finances or other things. I've known many people like this over the years. Some of them even look like a very dramatic conversion. Again, they went away rejoicing. I've experienced forgiveness. I have a relationship with God and ultimately it was a flash in the pan faith. Jesus was nothing more than a means to an end. They looked at Jesus like he was a genie who would give them three wishes and when that ran out, they had no more need for Jesus. The third group we could call the crowded heart Verse 18, others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Friends, this is the person who hears the word of God in church, through the Bible, in a book, through a friend, over the radio, at their private Christian school. They hear the word of God but they ultimately find it less attractive than other things. Like the second person, there seems to be this initial positive response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But other things are going to choke out that seed. These other weeds will prove to be more powerful. This person considers the words of Christ. They consider the promises of God's kingdom, at first at least, to be great gain. They hear of forgiveness of sins, being made right with God, having their guilt removed. They hear all these promises of the gospel and they say, that sounds great, I want that. And they begin initially to follow. They probably find the ideals of Christianity to be beautiful and noble and worthwhile. But ultimately something changes. Ultimately the the true nature of their heart gets exposed. And they realize that the deeper desires of their heart are not for God, They're not for Jesus. They're actually for the trappings of this world. Things like wealth, power, leisure, security and safety. Now, it's not that we can't have any of those things as Christians. Sometimes you do have some of those things. But it's that those things ultimately become idolatrous to this individual. Those things matter most to this individual. And those things actually capture this individual's heart where they begin to pursue those things even when those things are at odds with the ethics of Christ's kingdom. See, the tempting thing about all of the earthly things, wealth, power, leisure, safety and security, is those things are saying, you can have me now. The challenge with the promises of the kingdom is so many of those you get then, after this earthly life, in eternity with Jesus. 
And so for this person, rather than devoting themselves to building God's kingdom, their focus becomes building their own. They're focused on the here and now. And their hearts become calloused to the things of God. In the scriptures in the New Testament, we have a good example of this, a tragic example of this, I should say. It was a man named Demas. Demas served God with the Apostle Paul. Demas became a trusted friend and co-laborer with him. But listen to the sad final commentary on Demas's life written by Paul himself. This is 2 Timothy 4.10. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. It's tragic. Demas was here for a while, but something mattered more than Christ ultimately for Demas. Both person two and person three, or I should say heart two and heart three, temporarily wanted to obey the word, but ultimately they fall away and they prove unfruitful. Growing up in the church, I was often sent to youth retreats. I remember these in junior high and high school and Overall, they were great experiences, but I remember we'd go up to the mountains, let's say, for a weekend. And at different points in my adolescent years, I remember going and really being moved by preaching that was happening and kind of this community of faith and even making these kind of resolutions in my heart that, man, when I come back down from this mountain, this is it. I'm going to actually live for Jesus now. I'm going to walk 100% for the Lord. And yet time and time again, that was a short-lived profession. That was a short-lived decision and the cares of this world would become attractive again and I would get distracted and find myself not living for Jesus. There are many people like that. What we're ultimately looking for is not just for people to pray a prayer, not people to just make a decision for a moment to say yes to Jesus. What the Lord's ultimately looking for is hearts that are radically transformed, which manifest itself in people who hold fast to the word and submit their lives to it. People who will submit themselves to baptism, submit themselves to the local church, submit themselves to everything commanded in God's word and begin growing in Christ's likeness, which brings us then to the final soil, which we can call the good heart in verse 20. Friends, this is the person who hears the word of God in church, in their private Christian school, through a friend, through a parent, through a grandparent, through reading the Bible themselves. And as they hear the word of God, they accept it and they hold fast to it. The good soil is the soil where the seed can actually take root. It's soil that is soft. It's soil that's free of debris. It's soil that doesn't have other competitors like weeds that are stronger than the seed. In the good soil, the seed establishes deep roots and it grows up into a fruitful crop that actually benefits the sower. This, of course, in Jesus' teaching here is the person whose heart is open to the word of God. In Luke's gospel, we read that this person has, an I love this, an honest and a good heart. This person's heart is open to the word of God. The idea is that of a person who genuinely and sincerely receives the word. The person whose heart desires the word of God and wants to be formed by it. I'll say it differently. This is the person who not only hears God's word, but heeds God's word. We also read in Luke's gospel that this person bears fruit with patience. And so we see there that 
The person whose heart is good soil for the word of God is the person who over the long haul continues to receive God's word and put it into practice and they're bearing fruit with patience over the long haul of their life. Now notice Jesus doesn't specify here what the fruit is. He doesn't tell us. But we can look to other passages in the New Testament to start filling in some of that for us. Certainly part of this would be what the Apostle Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Where all of a sudden we become marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the book of James, James talks about how the person who has received the wisdom from above, meaning God's wisdom, actually has a harvest of righteousness. And so we could say that some of this good fruit that a person begins to bear is a life of righteousness. They start living in obedience to God's word. Probably we could put into here a commitment to discipleship and evangelism, where God's word is being sown further by this person who has also received the word of God. So what's the takeaway from this parable that Jesus is giving us? Well, the takeaway is that all of us must take heed to how we listen to the word of God. It is abundantly clear here that hearing the word of God is not enough. All four of these hearts heard the word of God. The scribes and the Pharisees heard the word of God in one manner of speaking. But hearing is not enough. The only person who benefits from it is the person who accepts it and is formed by it. The person who hears and heeds the word of God. The person who listens and obeys. In the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' most famous and significant extended teaching, he gives all of this teaching about life in the kingdom. And his conclusion goes like this in Matthew 7, 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Friends, the blessing is in hearing and doing. That's it. So hearing is not enough. We have to hear the word, accept it, and actually obey it. The takeaway then is for every single one of us to do heart work this morning. To ask ourselves the question, what sort of soil is my heart? And maybe the best way to answer that would be to say, what would those who know me best say about the condition of my heart? Are, are they seeing in my life an openness for God's word, a desire for God's word? And again, not just to say, oh, I want to read it or I want to hear it, but an openness that looks like this. I want to be transformed by it. I want God's word to take root in my heart and begin to produce fruit, spiritual fruit in my life. Is that what other people that know you best would say about you? Or if they were being honest with you, would they say that you probably look more like soil one, two, or three?
If it would be one, two, or three for you, I want to end this message with good news. If you've never received the word of God, you can do that today. If you hear God's voice calling to you today, then you have a choice before you. But know this, first and foremost, the word of God is a person and not a book. Jesus Christ is literally called the word of God, meaning that he's the fullness of God's revelation to the world. So if you've never received the word of God, here's what you need to know today. The first step in receiving the word of Christ is receiving Christ the word. It's putting your faith in Jesus, who is God's ultimate revelation to the world. He's the one who came to deal with your sin through his death on the cross, and then to conquer death through his resurrection. And Jesus offers to you his very life. And he says to you, come to me, trust in me, receive me. And as you do that, you will receive God's word in its most foundational way. And from that moment on, you can begin to obey his words that we find in the pages of scripture. And you yourself can become a person who begins to bear beautiful, lasting, eternal fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. There is no better decision than you can make in light of the teaching of Jesus than to say yes to Jesus, to open your heart to him and obey his every word. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you today for coming to this earth 2,000 years ago for our salvation. You did not have to come here but you chose to out of your love for us. And Jesus, as you came to this earth and you taught us through your holy word, you've made it clear to us how we might experience your forgiveness and how we might experience eternal life. In particular today, we're reminded of the fact that the way that we listen to your word, the way that we hear your word is eternally significant. We're reminded that it is not enough to just hear the word, to be able to quote Bible verses or to say, oh yeah, 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 I know those stories. That's not enough. What ultimately matters is a new heart and a transformed life that comes about through faith in Christ who is the word. And so God, today we pray that all of us would find that our own hearts trust in Jesus, that his words are ringing true to us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would testify in all of our hearts and minds that Jesus is true and that he is the way, the truth, and the life and that no man comes to the Father but by him. Lord, this week, would you help us to be a people who are devoted to your word, who are eager to hear and do all that you've commanded us. And Lord, we pray that much spiritual fruit would be born through that for your glory and the good of your people. In Jesus' name. Amen.